Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Cold cases are often brutal and heartbreaking. However, investigators and families never give up with some cold cases being solved years or decades later. And with the introduction of newer forensic technologies, we are seeing more and more cold cases being solved. Cold cases solved this week are mysteriously listed. Number 5. Anita Pitu In 1968, there would be three young boys who would come across a gruesome crime scene. They discovered the body of an unidentified woman. She was wearing a floral print blouse, purple pants, loafers and a costume ring, with a large blue stone set in a silver band. She was found in a drainage ditch near Newland Street and Yorktown Avenue in Huntington Beach, California. The boys would run for help and the murder was called through to local police a murder that would haunt Orange County for the decades that followed. The woman's body carried no form of identification at all. In fact, it appeared as though the woman had been thoroughly cleaned to prevent her being identified. But one thing was for certain. This was not something she had done herself. She'd been beaten, assaulted and had her throat slit. Despite the horrific murder and the large number of injuries, there was very little evidence available, both for the identity of the victim and her killer. However, there is no such thing as the perfect crime. Neither body was the slightest remnants of a cigarette butt which had been carelessly discarded. As it would be later discovered, this cigarette butt held vital DNA evidence. And this DNA would prove a match to the DNA swabbed from the assault kit used to pick up traces left on the unidentified woman. The woman was estimated to have been aged in her mid-twenties at the time of her death. Despite multiple attempts trying to find the family of the woman, investigators on her case constantly came up empty-handed. This woman, it seemed, was unknown to everyone. It didn't seem as if anyone had even reported her missing, and the case quickly went cold. That was until more than five decades later. 2019, some 51 years since the murder of the Huntington Beach Doe. The Orange County Sheriff's Department reopened the Jane Doe case, and in the process uncovered some of the long-sought-after answers. Orange County investigators were able to find a DNA match from the profile pulled from the samples collected off the woman's body. More crucial DNA evidence was able to be obtained from the cigarette butt, still held in evidence after all these years. Through the use of investigative genetic genealogy, police were able to map out a possible family tree of the murderer. More so than that, though, they were able to narrow that down to find the person responsible for the murder. His name, Johnny Crisco. Unfortunately, this did not lead to all the answers they sought, however, 
as it was revealed Crisco had died of cancer in 2015, just four years earlier. Crisco had not been a suspect at the time of the murder, but it was reported that he had been discharged from the army after only three years. This was when a psychiatric assessment determined he had, quote, a pattern of being quick to anger, easy to feel unjustly treated, chronically resentful, immature and impulsive, unquote. Even though investigators were successful in finding out who had been responsible for ending the Huntington Beach Doe's life, they were still disappointed he had narrowly evaded facing the consequences of his actions in life. They knew their investigation could not end until they were able to identify the victim. Having once again utilised the same technology used to find her killer, police officers were able to finally name the woman who had not had her name for almost a lifetime. Her name was Anita Louise Pitou, and she had been a long way away from home. Anita was originally from Maine, where her parents, seven siblings and extended family lived through their entire lives. In early 1968, she sent a letter to her family saying she had found work as a waitress in Southern California and living with friends. In the letter, she said she would return home by the end of the following year, but they never heard from her again. Late 2010, investigators were finally able to reach out to Anita's remaining family. It became clear her siblings never gave up trying to find her. Anita's niece, Laurie, said, quote, It is a big weight lifted off. She is not missing anymore. She is close to us now. We have a sense of peace that comes with that. Unquote. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Number four, Carla Walker. February 16, 1974, Fort Worth, Texas. 17-year-old Carla Walker was a popular and beautiful cheerleader. Carla was excited because this was the night of the Valentine's Day dance at her high school, her date being her boyfriend, Rodney McCoy. Rodney was a year older than Carla, and he was the quarterback for the football team, the two making the perfect high school couple. The couple had a great time at the dance where they met up with friends, and although the dance was chaperoned, they managed to sneak in some alcohol and smoke a small amount of marijuana. Carla, Rodney and some friends left early to go get some food at the local eatery. Carla and Rodney would then leave for some alone time, going to a well-known hangout for local teens, the local bowling alley. However, instead of going inside, the two decided to sit in the back of Rodney's car in the mostly empty parking lot. As teens do, they talked and they laughed and they kept occupied with each other. They didn't notice a stranger approaching the car. Now, it's not uncommon to leave your car unlocked if you're sitting inside, and this is exactly what Rodney did. 
So when the stranger opened the door on the side that Carla was sitting, she tumbled out onto the ground. Rodney tried to grab Carla from where she had fallen, but the stranger pulled out his gun, pointing it at Rodney and threatening to kill him. Carla would allegedly scream, quote, I'll go with you, just don't shoot him, unquote. Rodney heard the gun fire and he panicked, thinking he'd been shot. But then the stranger pointed the gun at his face and then pulled the trigger again, but this time nothing happened. This was when Rodney realised that the gun was not loaded. But before he had time to fully process all this information, he was struck in the head repeatedly with the gun, which knocked him unconscious. When Rodney woke, he was still inside the car. His head was bleeding, but Carla was missing. The last thing Rodney remembered was Carla shouting to him, quote, Go get my dad, unquote. Covered in blood, Rodney raced to Carla's home and told her parents what happened. Horrified, the walkers called the police to report their daughter missing. At the bowling alley, police found a magazine for a 22 caliber Ruger pistol, the search for Carla Walker being extensive and thorough, including police and volunteers searching by foot, horseback and helicopter, trying to find any sign of her. Rodney gave the police an incredibly clear description of the stranger. He said the man was Caucasian and slender, clean cut with short wavy hair. He'd been wearing a shiny green sleeveless vest and a white cowboy hat. Rodney was also sure that he heard the man speak with a Texan accent. At first, Rodney himself became a suspect, and they would target him even more because police had no further leads. After three days of searching, Carla's body was found in a ditch near Lake Benbrook. Her autopsy revealed that she had died between 24 and 36 hours after being abducted, being held captive for that period. During this time, she was tortured and assaulted. It would also be revealed she was injected with morphine, her cause of death being determined to be due to strangulation. As soon as she was found, the police were flooded with tips with possible suspects, receiving about 200 calls within a day. It seemed like this case was going to be easily solved, as there were several viable suspects. One such suspect who caught the police's attention was Glenn Samuel McCurley. McCurley lived about half a mile from the bowling alley. On the night in question, he wasn't working on his job as a truck driver and didn't have a confirmable alibi. He also had a magazine-making machine for the same gun that was found in the parking lot where Carla was abducted. When police asked to see the gun, McCurley claimed it had been stolen. And though McCurley's story was questionable, the police had no solid evidence to make an arrest. For years, police revisited Carla's case, but none of the leads received resulted in them finding her killer. However, investigators never gave up hope. They were sure that one day they would solve Carla's murder. They had DNA samples from her body and clothing, but the forensic technology just wasn't ready in the 1970s. 2019, decades after Carla's horrific murder, her case received renewed interest when a letter relating to the crime was found and shared on social media. Because of this renewed interest, the DNA found on Carla's bra was sent to Orthrum Incorporated, 
using the most cutting-edge technology that hadn't been previously available, Othram created a full DNA profile of the suspect. This profile was compared in CODIS, which failed to find any results. This profile was then added to GED match, and the DNA sequence came up with a narrow search to three brothers with the last name McCurley. On July 7, 2020, investigators took the bin from outside of now 77-year-old Glenn McCurley's house. As he had been the police's primary suspect right from the get-go, he would be the brother they focused on from the GED match DNA search. Items from his bin were examined and his DNA collected. And two months later, on September 4, 2020, it was determined that McCurley's DNA matched that found on Carla's bra. Police immediately made their move and they arrested him. McCurley told the same story he told police all those years ago. He said he didn't know anything and never hurt anyone. He didn't even know Carla Walker. McCurley even provided a DNA sample and consented to it being analysed. Those swabs of DNA once again matched the sample taken from Carla's body. McCurley was charged with capital murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Number 3. Fawn Cox July 21, 1989. 16-year-old Fawn Cox returned to her Kansas City home after a shift at her part-time job. She had an early shift again tomorrow, so she said goodnight to her mother Beverly and headed straight to bed at 11pm. The next morning, Beverly went into her daughter's room because her alarm had not stopped beeping. She shook Fawn for several seconds without being able to wake her. That's when she realised Fawn was dead and had been for some time. At some point during the night, someone entered Fawn's bedroom through her window, raping and strangling her. DNA evidence collected at the crime scene and a $10,000 reward was announced by Crime Stoppers for any tips leading to an arrest. Investigators believed Fawn knew her killer and that she was targeted. Over the years that followed, three different suspects were charged with Fawn's murder. All were teenage boys. Charges against the three were dropped when DNA evidence failed to link any of them to the crime scene. One would spend eight months in jail before being released. The Cox family fought for the use of advanced DNA testing. They believed the case was easily solvable, but money would be in the way of justice. The testing was expensive, and the Kansas City Police Department could not afford to cover it. The Cox family were determined, however, and they held fundraisers to raise the money themselves. In 2019, the FBI became involved. They agreed to pay for the testing, and within weeks, the Cox family finally had the answers they spent 31 years searching for. His name was Donald Cox Jr., and he was Fawn's very own cousin. Unfortunately, he died of a drug overdose in 2006. Fawn's case made history, as it was the first to be solved by Kansas City Police using genetic genealogy. Her family expressed that although the killer was not someone they expected, they felt relieved to finally have some closure. Quote, I don't know how to explain it. It's the happiest moment. This is what we've been praying for. Unquote. 
Number two, Cheryl Hammick. October 31st, 1981, Halloween night. The body of a lifeless young woman was found in the cornfield in Brooks County, Georgia, an autopsy determining she'd been stabbed to death. The woman was thought to be aged between 18 and 24 years old, but due to her not carrying any identification and not matching any missing persons report in the area, police were stumped at who she may be and the case of the Georgia Jane Doe quickly went cold. Shortly after the discovery of the woman's body, 52-year-old fair employee George Newsom confessed to the murder. He'd been arrested while in a stolen camper where police discovered a rope with the same ligature marks that were found on the woman's neck. Newsom told police he'd invited her to join the travelling fair, but he killed her over an argument about another man. He refused to divulge in the woman's identity. He would be sentenced to life imprisonment and he died behind bars in 1988, all the while refusing to cooperate with authorities. In a futile attempt to identify the Georgia Jane Doe, her body was put on display at a local funeral home. However, this also proved unsuccessful. Later, a local family volunteered their family plot, rather than the planned unmarked grave, and the woman was buried in a high-quality cement casket instead of a wooden casket that was used for unidentified remains. A forensic sketch was placed along with the quote, known only to God. The case of the Georgia Jane Doe would go cold and stay that way for the next 37 years. October 31st, 2018. The Brooks County Sheriff's Office received a phone call from a woman named Kayla Bishop. She told investigators that she had seen a photo of the Georgia Jane Doe's grave on Facebook. She claimed the woman shown in the composite looked similar to a childhood friend of hers, Cheryl Hammock, who disappeared in 1981. With this, investigators reached out to Cheryl's family, and the Georgia Jane Doe's remains were exhumed. For over 18 months, the Northern Texan Centre for Human Identification painstakingly tested the DNA samples recovered from the corpse to that from a surviving family member. And in 2020, after nearly four decades, the Georgia Jane Doe had her name, Shirlene Cheryl Hammock. The discovery of the Georgia Jane Doe's real identity had a massive impact on the Hammock family. Cheryl's sister Joni later said in an interview, quote, it was difficult growing up, not knowing if she was safe or if she was being taken care of. A lot of worrying, a lot of looking. We searched and we searched and we had no answers. Unquote. Number one, Christopher Daly. April 25th, 1995, Huntsville, Alabama. A body of a man in his 20s was found near an abandoned farm. It appeared that Christopher Daly had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. Close by, his 1983 tan Toyota Tercel was found partly submerged in the nearby Tennessee River. When investigators opened the vehicle, they found a large rock tied to the accelerator. They also found his wallet and ID and were able to verify that the body belonged to that of 26-year-old Christopher. Christopher had only been reported missing a day earlier when he failed to show for his job as a server at the Huntsville Hilton Hotel. 
Police investigators began an intensive inquiry to find Christopher's killer. There wasn't any cell phone data or surveillance footage available like if this crime happened today. They had no suspects, no motive, no leads whatsoever. Over the decades, nothing else emerged. Though never closed, the case was most definitely cold. Christopher's murder would remain unsolved for 25 years, until November 18, 2020. The violent crimes detective, Sean Muckadam, answered the phone which would prove to be the strangest call he would ever receive throughout his long career. At first, he was sure it was a prank, the caller announcing he wanted to confess to a murder he committed years earlier. The detective could not help but be sceptical. He asked for more details, but the caller became vague. He couldn't remember exactly when the murder happened, but he thought it was in the late 1980s. So this gave detectives the unique situation where they had a murder suspect and they had to work backwards to find the crime. The Violent Crimes Unit spent hours going over unsolved murders from the 1980s in order to narrow down the location and year to one that sounded similar to the one that the caller described. They finally came across Christopher Daly's murder from 25 years earlier. The caller was then asked questions, testing him about the case, answers only someone involved in the murder could possibly know. It was only then detectives realised the caller was telling the truth. He was 53-year-old Johnny Dwight Whitehead. Whitehead was arrested and in his official police interview, he showed genuine remorse for his crimes and that he was ashamed for what he had done. The weight of the guilt had been weighing on him his whole life and he wanted to get it off his chest. Whitehead was terminally ill and it was this illness that sparked his desire to confess before he died. He was released on bail pending a grand jury trial, but he would die from stage 4 lung cancer on June 27, 2022, whilst awaiting trial. After 25 years, Christopher's family finally had some answers, and like many other families of cold case victims, they never thought they would ever know what truly happened to Christopher. Said of Whitehead's confession, quote, He killed someone. He should have come forward all those years ago. Unquote. What would you like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Please search Mysteriously Listed on Facebook. Like the page so you don't miss an episode. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search Mysterious List. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Research, additional writing, hosting and production is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.